like scary movies? Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You're making popcorn? Uh-huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And you might know today's guest as a co-host of the Gentleman Overlords podcast or as part of the Flagrant Family of Pods, but you definitely know him as the Drop King. Please welcome Robert Persinger. How you doing, bud? Hey, thanks for having me, George. Definitely happy to have you here. Uh, I am very excited to be talking about today's movie. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? I remember getting into horror with like, mm, I guess you'd consider them like horror light or like kind of kids movies that have that scary bend to them, like uh, The Witches or Dark Crystal, uh, sure. you know, just think things from, you know, the eight, mid 80s that just felt like they, oh, they don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> but the, they do it. They have legitimate scares and uh, or, uh, you know, yeah. the never ending story, the Gamork, the wolf from that is, I think terrifying and uh sure everyone talks about the the bog but no I mean, one's the bog is sad talking about the gamork the, the bog is sad and then that the wolf about to snatch him up right after he yeah. lost his friend is even worse piling on a great prop in that movie yeah and then just kind of like you know i i remember i have a, a core memory of a neighbor of ours when i was growing up describing the entire plot of arachnophobia to me and and uh, my brother because we hadn't we were weren't able to go see it ourselves, but did everything and talked about the guy getting bit in his tent and the starting and freaking out and, you know, <laughs> immediately, you know, immediately dying from the horrible poison. And man, oh man, it just, it sent me and I, I still hate spiders, but it's such a fun, well-made movie about them. And then also I feel like when John Goodman's on screen in that movie, the, the funny music kicks in and you know, everything's safe for at least that <laughs> scene, which is brilliant. Love it. Absolutely. Great communication through the score. I do remember that we had a VHS copy of, the very old um, black and white Dracula. And I I really enjoyed that. And I found the, there's a shot where Renfield is coming up from the bottom of the boat. And they're like, oh God, there's, you know, I think all the bodies are desiccated and he's coming out of the darkness with wide eyes. And I thought that was so chilling. A lot of movies, I feel like a lot of my early horror was watching it from around a corner. Uh, <laughs> Georgie sticking his hand down the, uh, the you know, the, the sewer grate. And then you just get the shot of Tim Curry's sharp teeth it's not that bad, but it's just, it, it sticks with you. Yeah. I've mentioned many times on the show that that one in particular really just scorched me. <laughs> oh, I mean, I can imagine. You're your namesake and all that. Exactly. No paraffin exactly. boats for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And, and definitely, I think it is interesting how a lot of these movies from the 80s that you talked about, you know, you might not have considered them horror at the time, but you look back at them and they do have a serious darkness to them that, uh, you know, we talked about Return to Oz recently. And that's a great one. In that, the doctor or the doctor, the director was talking about how it's so crucial to have that element of scariness to feel the peril so that you can feel the relief afterwards. 100%. And I do think that those uh, are so great for getting kids into it because, yes, they feel the fear. But then they also do get that relief afterward, and it, it kind of is a comforting thing. It gives you a baseline just for the world, and, and you know, hopefully nothing is quite as scary as a wheeler while you're walking down the street <laughs> or whatever, but, you know, it, it's it's good. It informs you, and then you have something to go off of. It's, uh, they're formative. I, I would, I hope every kid has, you know, moments like that with movies. Yeah, and if a wheeler does show up, you're ready. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can't be worse than the woman with the chamber of heads going down right. every single side. <laughs> 
I'm very curious to know, especially because, you know, when we were talking about what movie you were going to pick and and even just in the movies you were talking about there, pretty wide swath of taste. Uh, so I'm curious if you do have a favorite subgenre, something that you're more reaching for as like a comfort watch or something, uh, or if it really is just kind of all over the place. I'm, I'm pretty open to anything. I'm not like, uh, I know some folks are like, like uh the strangers is a great movie for example and that's a very realistic especially since like basically the 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 bad guys are like we don't have a a, no reason to do this we're just bored Mm -hmm. we you are you you are are home home, i believe is what they say so something like that is very scary but i totally go in for demonic possession and ghosts and you know scary aliens attacking your farm at night and all that kind of stuff just because doesn't even if it's uh, less likely to be real it doesn't make it any less scary to me and i just like all the different approaches i was into like torture porn when i was like younger like in the 2000s so i would watch anything like toolbox murders and the saw movies and just whatever was depraved but i've i've scaled back from that i it's not that it doesn't scare me it's just not my my scene as much they bring you back for saw 10 saw 10 hey i I should go for it i can't believe they're at 10 (laughs) that's that's just wild to me (laughs) It's hard to say what I, if there's a subgenre that I, I feel like I really, really love uh, uh, the Blair Witch Project, the first one, and it obviously spawned both a great amount of found footage, first person kind of movies, and a whole slew of of pretty mediocre to bad ones, in my opinion. But I think the ones that rise to the top are, are worth it, like As Above, So Below, a few other, a few other things like that. Yeah, I don't really have a, a pocket exactly. I'm I'm down for anything. One of my favorites from last year was Barbarian. Mm-hmm. Modern day classic. <laughs> it is a modern day classic. I thought it was excellent. I feel like there's actually some similarities to the movie we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and I did actually carve a a jack o' lantern in the style of Barbarian. It's it's the the lead actress walking down the stairs, just the silhouette, and uh, Zach Krieger liked it on Twitter. So that's a little a win a win for me. I was a fan and, and I had to show it and uh, he enjoyed that. So, well, yeah. he was right to like it because I saw the picture and it's very, very cool. Great oh. capturing of that uh, poster image. Thank you. So, uh, very cool stuff. And here we are just weeks after the Super Blue Moon talking about this week's pick, the famous John Landis werewolf picture thriller. I mean, <laughs> an American werewolf in London. <laughs> I mean, obviously, a lot of connections to that for the Landis and all that, uh, all the great makeup. So absolutely. Absolutely. This is a, a classic one. Are you generally a werewolf fan? And also, do you like there to be some comedy in your horror generally? Yeah, I think that I think, you know, maybe some of my favorite horror does have like a, a at least a good amount of of a comedy or some lightheartedness in between the scares. I think that's just like a great I looked back and was wondering, like, you know, this isn't the first horror comedy, but it didn't seem to be as prevalent. And it sounds like from stuff I read that some people were confused. Oh, it's too scary, but it also there's comedy. Oh, it's too funny and there's not enough horror. And people weren't able to settle on it. People were walking out at too scary a parts and yeah. didn't get the tone. Uh, but I and I do like werewolf movies. I like Dog Soldiers is really fun. Ginger Snaps. The Howling movies, uh, there's Howling 3, the marsupial, I think, is a pretty wild one, <laughs> where they introduce <laughs> Australian-style werewolves of different creatures. But yeah, I'm, I'm totally open for all of those. I, I didn't, I haven't revisited in a while, but I don't think I loved American Werewolf in Paris, mm. which was the threatened movie if they didn't give them, uh, you know, actors' visas or whatever, so. That's right. I thought about watching that one uh, in my preparation for this, because I watched a lot of werewolf movies going into sure. this, partially for research and partially just because... 
And I find that I really appreciate the vibe on a werewolf movie. It feels very autumnal to me. And mm-hmm. as we end the summer season and move into fall, I really was like, oh, man, this is really getting me in the mood for for this fall season that we're entering. So I was watching a lot of, of werewolf movies, and I was like, should I watch American Werewolf in Paris? Is there going to be any connection? And uh, I asked somebody who had seen it, and they were like, there's really not that much connection. And then I looked up some pictures of it and <laughs> saw the CG werewolf. And I said, I don't think I need to watch this. I mean, maybe someday. You know, like I said, I think I'll probably revisit it at some point, too. But, I mean, it's hard to... This is top-tier effects. This is is about as good as it gets. So, you can't put some, you know, 90s or early 2000s CG up against it for me. It's really just a tough disparity. Especially because not only was this game-changing at the time, but even today it still holds up as one of the best special effects showcases of all time i it's you know i'm uh i know it's not everyone's cup of tea but i i watch uh reaction videos of people watching movies for the first time a lot just because for me it's the next next best thing to like showing a buddy of yours something mm-hmm. for the first time you get to see them experience it and it's usually you know younger folks than me or at least people my age that just didn't you know they weren't keyed into all that uh, i have watched some of uh for american werewolf in london and the Reactions are great across the board, but everyone is just blown away by the effects and cannot understand in their brains how they made it happen because it's just right on top of of, you know, the main actor. It looks like he's transforming. It's insane. It's just insane. It's movie magic in, in the realest sense. I will also say director John Landis says it's very funny, I hope, but it's not a comedy, not a happy story. Those two boys are dead at the end. (laughs) I mean, I disagree with Landis on a few things, but uh, I, I feel like he can embrace that it's also comedic as well. It's comedic. Yes. Maybe it's not a comedy, but it is comedic. Right. I think that that's definitely what he's going for. And and he was frustrated with people not being able to accept that it had both of those things in it. And critics especially really sort of bristled against that. But he was explicitly trying to do a contemporary version of an old movie, trying to capture the horror that people felt at the time. And part of what makes that very explicit connection interesting is that not only is American Werewolf a very Jewish movie, but even the original Wolfman movie is. And in 1910, the book The Werewolf came out in Germany, and it was very popular and had more of a like rural protector of the people interpretation of what a werewolf was. Oh, interesting. And so when the Nazis rose to power, they took a lot of influence and imagery from this book. Uh, encouraging Germans to form wolf packs that would savage their enemies in the night. And among the Jewish people who fled Germany was Kurt Siodmak, the man who defined the modern werewolf by writing The Wolfman for Universal Studios. And it's pretty easy, once you understand this context, to read The Wolfman through a Jewish lens, uh, seemingly decent men who turn monstrous overnight and for whom the only salvation is death, Even the vision of a pentagram on their victim's palm is similar to the yellow patches that Jews had to wear under Nazi rule. So there are a lot of connections to the Holocaust and uh, and to the original Wolfman. Wow. Then you cut to John Landis, whose Jewish family immigrated due to the also awful Russian pogroms. And he's in Lithuania, Yugoslavia at the time, working as a runner on Kelly's Heroes. And it's here that he sees a gypsy feet first funeral, in quotes, (laughs) meant to prevent this guy from getting up and causing trouble. 
And so this display of superstition, combined with his regular exposure to the Wolfman as a youth, inspires him. And in fact, the universal rules are referenced frequently. But he also takes that Jewish perspective, centralized in the SS wolf dream sequence, which we'll discuss more when it comes up in the plot. But it's so fascinating to me because it doesn't, I don't think that it was like John Landis sitting down to be like, I'm going to write an amazing Jewish horror movie. But like, you know, you write pieces of yourself come out in the writing. And so just through his own having grown up with images of the Holocaust and everything and and that natural heritage of the Wolfman, it just is really interesting to me that that did come out and is like you can see it through that perspective. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I definitely didn't know about some of the origins of that, and and the fact that David Kessler is is Jewish, I'm sure, is was is not you know was definitely a big part of it too. The nurse right. made sure to make sure. Right. Uh, <laughs> she checked. <laughs> so he wrote this movie in 1969 while he's working on Kelly's Hero. He's an 18 year old. It got him a lot of jobs, but nobody wanted to actually make it because they felt it was too scary to be funny or too funny to be scary. That's right. And it, it is a hard needle to thread. Like I said, he does feel it leans to the horror side, but that's what allows this, quote, fantastic and essentially ridiculous thing to become real. If they treat things as comical a lot of the time, and they're like, that could never happen. It's crazy that I'm a werewolf. <laughs> like, they're laughing about it. Then the fear becomes real when they are also mocking it, and then suddenly they have to deal with the reality of it. You're in their shoes, and you you feel that fear with them. Yeah. I'm glad this seemed to have spawned more in the genre, because as hard as a needle, as you said, it is the thread. I feel like they he did it a very good job. And I think it's for that reason that we have, you know, Army of Darkness and all sorts of other things that sort of not that they didn't have their own launch pads, but it really feels like it helped propel that kind of thing into the forefront. So and just to prime American audiences for that existing for that blend of comedy and horror. Yeah, like it's it just feels something that's synonymous where people are going to a horror movie to get scared, but also like laugh immediately afterwards at, you know, when you're immediately coming down, it's just a movie. Maybe I won't have a nightmare. And, and it just I'm I'm happy that the two have become intertwined so often. Yeah, definitely. It took the combined success of Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House and Blues Brothers to get the cachet to make this movie finally. And he said he was trying to actually capture the original Wolfman. They wanted to capture the tragedy. One thing that they pointed out in some of the behind the scenes stuff that I thought was really fascinating is that the Wolfman is the only monster who's trying to end his life, not extend it. Frankenstein, Dracula, the mummy, they are all seeking some form of life, whether it's being able to just live their life as they've been brought back, like sure. Frankenstein, immortal curses, or, 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 you know, just immortality, like Dracula. They all want to stay alive. Meanwhile, the Wolfman is like, please fucking kill me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so they cast David Naughton for his sympathetic face. They felt that he really did capture that tragedy of the Wolfman. I loved that uh, it was just like a phone call or something, right? That he got cast yeah. or just, or, or maybe I'm thinking of... Um, of the other actor, but, uh, both. yes, both of them were like, like super John, quick. John just did an interview than an audition. <laughs> what? A, I mean, talk about, you know, I know he wanted unknowns, but like that really worked out because I just feel like, I mean, not only did it, I'm sure it did you know, numbers for their careers, but it's just, it, it's always refreshing when you just like go back and you just don't have a beat on these people. They're so mm -hmm. new and fresh. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
They set it in England to take advantage of the ED levy, which was a tax on box office receipts that helped fund British productions until, as Landis put it, Thatcher took a stake to the British film industry. Uh, <laughs> as you mentioned, they did have some trouble with getting permits for people, though, so this one was almost an American werewolf in Paris. Yes. They even got as far as scouting locations before they acquiesced and let everybody uh, come on board. Although, because they had to cast so many English actors, he wound up casting half the movie from a production of Nicholas Nickleby that he saw. And oh, he was really? Like, I like everybody in this. Was that, is that like uh, all the bar patrons and stuff? I'm, sure, I'm assuming. Yes, the and... doctor as well. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, several bar patrons. Uh, I mean, everyone in that bar has a great face and they just look so, they look, if you told me they just walked in with a camera and started filming the locals, I would believe you, so. Absolutely, absolutely. It also was a really good experience filming because it was his own production company. He, It was funny watching him be like, can I have this crane, John? Oh, sure, John. <laughs> like talking to himself. Wow, real Neil Breen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Came in under budget and ahead of schedule, and he got to do things how he wanted, including casting our leads with that informal interview process. He also let them improvise a lot and then gave them individual notes, which they found to be a pretty rewarding process. As great as David and Griffin Dunn as our two leads are, though, the key hire is Rick Baker to do the makeup. He'd worked on Schlock with Landis, and the two were talking about this movie even then. But he said, nobody was banging down John's door to make it after Schlock, so, quote, I had a long time to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you hear who they wanted to be cast as as, uh, the main actors at one point? I feel like I did, but it's I I can't pull I mean, think it. Think of so. a think of the previous Landis film. They wanted Belushi Aykroyd. Wow, <laughs> a very wow. different movie. Very different. Oh my god, I can't. I don't think I would like that. As no. my, I, Blues Brothers is literally one of my favorite movies. Uh, it's something that my dad and I watched a ton together growing up. So it's just something that I cannot be unbiased about. Sure. Uh, and even so, I'm like. <laughs> I don't think that would be. They're good great, at all. but it's just a whole different vibe. These are <laughs> these are young guys, you know, traveling Europe, and I feel like the other one is like they're there to meet their sons or something. Yeah, <laughs> even yeah. though they weren't that old. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, it, I will say though, uh, it paid off. All that time to think about it for Baker paid off with the very first Academy Award for Best Makeup. That is that uh, not the best compliment too? I, I what, what did didn't something else really good lose out, or was it the year before or something? I'm trying to remember what would have been. There was something else that did a really good job and maybe just just missed it being an award. I'm trying to trying to place yeah. it now, um, but well deserved. That sounds really familiar, but yeah, I, I mean, for for them to be like, finally, this is the one that just gets the category made. <laughs> Imagine they're like, all right, let's uh, scrounge together some other stuff that will look good this. <laughs> oh yeah, year. that's true. I wonder what the other nominees even were. Yeah, I should have looked that up. Unfortunately, I did not. Can't be prepared for everything, folks. That's okay. Hey, something for the <laughs> listeners to go and dig in on. But it's full light on latex, and it's very easy to see bad makeup in that kind of lighting, which is why there are so often heavy shadows. And this movie subverts that for especially the amazing transformation. Yes. Um, took four or so days for David specifically, then several more with just the puppets. And nobody else had replicated a whole human then made it change shape. That was new for this movie. And so it really like helped lay the groundwork for movies like The Fly, which everyone is like, yes, incredible, innovative, but it's working off of a foundation of the American Werewolf in London. Yeah, absolutely. One of my faves too, and that's another such great effects movie. God, Mm -hmm. just disgusting. (laughs) Truly, truly disgusting. I often say that like, 
I love so many genres of horror, but the one that just genuinely gets to me still is body horror stuff. Yeah. And the fly just is still so incredibly amazing. nails coming off and teeth falling oh out. It just God, has yeah. the realism Plus of like, on his finger if you, stuff. if you oh. fell the wrong ways that could happen to you. And like, I don't, oh. I don't think I've ever lost a nail, but just, just that little bit in a movie where a guy's becoming a fly, the nail falling <laughs> off is still very horrifying. So for sure, for sure. The wolf does look a lot like Rick's dog Bosco, which I thought was fun. He said that he was disappointed that it was quadrupedal and he fought hard against it. But Griffin says that he prefers it. I'm curious if you have a preference. You know, I like the idea of the wolf man, but I like the idea of a werewolf where it's more of a beastly wolf. Something that is you even see it in the brief amount of times. It's very broad shouldered. It's not Mm -hmm. doesn't look dog like it's very it's menacing. It almost looks like something that could stand up, but is running on all fours. The shot, I mean, we'll get to it, but there's a shot in the subway where you just see it briefly and it's just a great model of of something like that. And I guess I do prefer, I've seen so many bipedal ones, I guess I prefer the, the quadruped. I, I think that's a really fun way to do it and makes it more of a, you're halfway between, you're not, you're, you're man-like maybe in like the musculature and like the savagery and then into the wolf. It's, it's such a good, I think it's a really good move on their part of the way they did it. Yeah, I feel like it makes it more bestial. It makes mm-hmm. them feel more out of control in a way that I feel like they're intentionally doing. Like, yeah, the wolfman walking around on two legs is, you know, interesting, a manifestation of this sort of animalistic side of people. But for it to be so fully in the other direction that they have become the wolf in this way is definitely rarer. And I feel like it's it, it's explored uh, so so much more infrequently that I I do like it when it shows up in movies like this. Yeah, I'm curious kind of what the percentage shakes out to be. I would say like 30 or 40 on the more wolf side versus the more man side. But may, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's yeah, that even still feels maybe a little generous. Yeah, maybe I, so. I think it might be like 25. Yeah, it is. The movie is supported by an amazing soundtrack. One that didn't make the cut was Moonshadow, <laughs> which. <laughs> By Cat Stevens, I uh, they they mentioned in the commentary that Cat Stevens didn't want it included because he believes werewolves are real. <laughs> that is the funniest detail, and that's also those guys saying that. So I'm taking it with a grain of salt, but true. it is so funny to approach that and be like, "No way! Like I'm not supporting a movie that is making fun of these real creatures. <laughs> My <laughs> song won't be in that." Did you? And I'm assuming then, did you watch commentary and and the movie on its own as well? Yeah, so I actually watched. There were two commentaries on the uh, on the movie, and I mm. watched both of them and uh. also the movie on its own. One of the uh, commentaries was from Paul Davies, who wrote uh, a book and 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 shot a documentary about where American Werewolf in London. So he was very well informed, although certainly less comical than uh, than Griffin and David. Sure, he he described it as uh, because Cat Stevens was born again, he felt it was inappropriate. Which, to me, felt like it might just be a polite way of saying that he felt like werewolves were real. Sure. <laughs> that's that's maybe more in line with what actually was happening, but still a very funny anecdote. I will say the opening montage is cut to Moonshadow. So if you replace Vinton with Cat, it oh. does work perfectly. Oh, wow. So it's a real dark side of the moon right. shadow cut. Okay. Good to know. That's, that's exactly right. It was shot February to March and then released in August, which is a very quick turnaround. And then when it came out, because they looked like nice boys, it's very naturalistic and funny. Then they got hacked to bits. 
like we said, critics critics felt like they couldn't it couldn't choose what it wanted to be. They didn't really like it. Griffin and David's parents, on the other hand, felt very strongly that it was in fact a horror movie and that they were deeply disturbed by it. David's parents couldn't speak to the press because they were in shock. And Griffin's mom hated his role with not just his death, but then the fact that he kept coming back. She was like, this is the worst thing that ever You don't want to see your son on screen at that point. Yeah. The good thing is, though, that audiences didn't care. They didn't feel it needed to pick a lane. It made $62 million worldwide against their budget of $5.8 million. So definitely a success. And as you said, sort of is the inspiration for a generation of horror comedies or at least horror movies with comedy in them 100 yeah so let's get into the actual movie a lot of people wonder about the dedication at the top jim o'rourke was clint eastwood's stuntman on kelly's heroes he wound up producing schlock for uh john landis and then died of lung cancer right before this came out so that's where that dedication comes from ah okay but we open up with the dulcet tones of blue moon in the hills of wales our two boys being given a ride to the middle of nowhere, packed in the back of a truck with the driver's sheep. This, of course, pulls double metaphorical duty as the driver warns them to stay off the moors. They are sheep being led to the slaughter, but also uh, he is a wolf among the sheep. So two metaphors for the price of one. Very good. <laughs> one interesting element of this movie, though, is that you get very little time to establish the vital relationship between these two guys. These opening minutes where you have to like them and the way they interact are so hugely important, but it feels effortless because they are so likable. Even just the way that they're goofing around with the sheep and being like, I'll miss you. Like they are very charming guys. Yeah. Bye ladies or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) What I think was improvised. And I want to say that they, I I probably read that they did, you know, they didn't know each other prior to giving these roles and ended up no, you know, they ended up, I think they both grew up in Connecticut or something it's it's great that they were thrust into it together and then immediately have that rapport. If you told me that these were actors that had got, you know, gone on the same auditions for years, I would have believed you because it's very naturalistic. I really enjoy Definitely. that about it. Absolutely. In the commentary, the very first story that Griffin tells is one about how this was one of the first things that they shot. They're out in Wales. They only have one toilet having trailer. And when Griffin went in to use it, Someone else didn't realize he was in there. They used a pickup to drive the trailer to a completely different spot, like four miles away while he's in there trying to take a dump. Insane. <laughs> Terrible start to filming. Yeah. Especially since he probably like, did they make him walk back or like what happened? <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're like, where the fuck is Griffin? <laughs> also, where's the bathroom? When did we need it for a little bit longer? <laughs> They also got a little worried about this being an elaborate murder plot when the first thing they do is, okay, get in this truck with a guy you think is some local and drive away. (laughs) All right. But they stop off at a local pub, the Slaughtered Lamb, very iconic bar, as you say, uh, full of faces with character. Oh, it's the best. They get a frosty reception, though. It is a great scene. The puffer jackets that they're wearing are intended to be sort of like spaceman vibes. Like, they're completely out of place. Mm. And and it works really, really effectively. You know, as they said in the commentary uh, from Paul Davies, the documentarian, he was like, it does such a great job of establishing them as different as as out of place already not a vest or tweed on them they're all they look not they're nothing like anyone around them and yes yeah look around no paper boy caps betwixt (laughs) those i mean i would kill to own either of those two jackets they look so comfy i love them yeah Yeah. hey just some classic north faces gotta gotta respect them 
Jack points out the pentagram, or pentangle as he calls it, and <laughs> wonders if they're warding off a wolfman, per the Universal Movie Association with the symbol. And we get the iconic line of, you made me miss. Uh, it's it's just such a I've great I've never missed that board before. That yes. do, what do you think of movies where they reference that there is those there are those movies or stories in the universe because they're saying, oh, it's like the universal wolfman. It's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. they're just saying there's wolfmen in this, you know, because there's a movies that dance around it. It's the first time that zombies appear. There is apparently no zombie media or you know what I mean? Right. So it, it is interesting that they literally name check the universal wolfman before all this kicks off. I like it because it's sort of. In a lot of these horror movies, like the ones that you mentioned, where they don't reference the the media that everyone's learning exists. everything for the first time, or yeah, yes. and and yeah, that sets them up to do some interesting subversions, definitely. But you're often wondering, like, okay, what are the breaks from the tradition? Like, what, like, am I gonna am I gonna be surprised by stuff? Whereas with this, it immediately puts you on the same level as mm-hmm. these characters. You go, okay. The Universal Studios Wolfman is the baseline for what this, what the rules of the Wolfman are here, right? Sure. And so when later on he's like, "Oh, I think it can only be killed by someone who loves you." <laughs> that seemed that was an odd one, but also, and I think, well, we'll jump a little bit ahead, but like they mentioned silver bullets, and 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 he's like, "Don't be silly. What are you talking about?" Right. <laughs> so you know, and so for them to set this up and then and then subvert it. Yeah. By saying like, oh, pieces of that are actually bullshit. Um, I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, so I definitely think it's it can can be done very clunkily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they pull it off great. In this. Yes. Yeah. There is some reticence from the group. They're all wary enough of these two boys from Pace Picante style New York City <laughs> <laughs> that they do the English equivalent of get a rope and send them out. Into the cold embrace of night and the jaws of the wolf. Murder it is. <laughs> yeah. Beware the moon, lads. How do, I, how do I be- beware the moon? I know I know the <laughs> moors part, but like I can't stop the sky. What are you talking about? <laughs> ah, it is from shade to shade. comical that just after this, they, they, they just make a, a 90 degree turn off the road <laughs> into the... <laughs> He's distracted with thoughts of Italy. <laughs> That's true. They're they're singing and da- yes, yeah. That's right. They leave and they wander into the moors, in quotes, as it rains. It was actually the back of Windsor Castle, which I thought was pretty interesting. And the wolf howls. This particular howl is apparently an elephant trumpeting played backwards. Oh. Uh, with some reverb added to it. It's a great it. sound. On, it, it sounds yes. more distant than I feel like it should be, but I love the actual, the sound of the, of the howl is really cool. Definitely. Later on, there's a uh, pig's one. I feel like this uh, elephant one is really is working for me. It, as you mentioned, it does sound a little distant, but it, it w- when the barmaid is like, oh, fuck, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oh, fuck, it is scary. It's an intense noise. He's on the hunt. Oh, I didn't hear anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the guys said that they were trying to act realistically as these characters and that they felt that they would be the type that finds macabre humor when they're really frightened. I think that that nervous energy does feel real and scary because you're like, you want them to focus up and like, you're like, no, please pay attention to what's going on Mm -hmm. here. And they're joking around. I also, this is benefited by the camera swinging around them as they move. Uh, Jack says it's circling us. 
and the camera does as well and sort of maintains their momentum it's circling around them you, pacing them you can't see too far out in the background it, it does feel naturally like it's just that dark out there with no light pollution yeah. so it's really it's really effective definitely definitely the wolf attacks it was half a wolf on a wheelbarrow and they would just push it in and shake it <laughs> i love that <laughs> but the griffin performance is so damn good that it carries it completely. I do not question it for a second. Nope. You see the fluff from the jacket at first, and then by the time they're running, he's running away, and you see the cut back, and it's just shiny, shiny blood in the moonlight. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yes, it absolutely tears Jack to shreds, then attacks David when he comes back to try and protect Jack. Uh, but David is saved by the appearance of the villagers who shoot the wolf. But as David fades, he sees instead the corpse of a man with a large bullet wound. Yes, I did hear that that people were confused by this. And I guess for me, it's like, OK, I'm they just shot the werewolf and then you're seeing a man who's shot dying. So then you should make that connection. But it sounds like audiences at the time, at least, were not as keyed in, which I can kind of get if that's it, for, for a movie that has an incredible, you know, almost entire transformation. I feel like maybe they could have done a hand, you know, a paw becoming a hand or something. But mm. I think you would have been giving away too much of that incredible scene later so for me it's he could have i guess he could have looked and looked at david and looked back and looked at the guy and made it more clear but it wasn't an issue for me i'm i'm thinking that these these folks back in the day just needed a you know better uh (laughs) just needed to deal with it the cooler what effect (laughs) (laughs) after yeah so he wakes up in the hospital frank oz Oh, so funny as the man from the embassy. Mr. Kessler, Mr. Kessler, please. I know this is a dramatic experience, Mr. Kessler, but oh, it's the it's so funny that he did that. I love it. These dumbass kids never appreciate anything to do. (laughs) He's from the embassy or something. He's just like, oh, my God. Really, really great. The report says that they were attacked by a lunatic which doesn't quite add up to the doctor, especially with David's insistence that there was a wolf. He does try to placate David, though. As he says shortly, if there were a monster roaming around Northern England, we'd have seen it on the telly. Sure. I love that the one cop is like, you expect me to believe there's some crazy conspiracy to cover up a wolf attack? Which is, of course, exactly what happened. Yeah. And it's not that big. It's just that the town isn't going to tell you that there's a werewolf going on. (laughs) David is recovering in the hospital physically, but he's afflicted by nightmares of running and hunting and transformation. Uh, He said it was very cold running around naked in the moors for the nightmare sequences, which I definitely believe. This is, I don't know, this is another thing that, like, how much of a trend before this was, like, hallucinations and stuff and and weird dreams for for a werewolf. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, I I mean, I'm sure they've done it since, but that is such a great element to me of, like, did he leave the hospital and go hunt a deer? Did he, is he really, is this just the animalistic part of what's happening? If he's not a werewolf, is he just psychotic now after the attack or something it's really really well done great stuff definitely david also said the scleral lenses were painful as hell Uh, the makeup in the bed was as bad or worse than the wolf makeup he said (laughs) i can't and they would have been like glass probably at the time right like oh god rick rick baker was like uh yeah it's pretty dangerous i guess but we didn't know don't blink too fast they'll shatter into a million pieces (laughs) That's right. That's absolutely right. David is being taken care of by nurse Alex Price, played by Jenny Gutter, who is 
incredible in this movie. She is so great as sort of the backbone that David has to play against now that Jack is gone. Yeah, he has no Uh, other real ties here and he meets her and it just becomes the little shred of humanity he's holding on to. Exactly. And Naughton said he was really infatuated with Jenny and she was unimpressed. And he told her, oh, I saw you a bunch in Equus. And she was like, big deal, pal, get in line. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good for her. Don't settle for this for this first time acting gig. uh, (laughs) Former Dr. Pepper spokesman. The doctor pleads with him to remain sane until David is no longer his problem. So Nurse Price is assigned to keep him company. And she reads him a Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's Court, one of Landis's favorite books. Apparently, he wanted to make the movie really badly. When a kid in King Arthur's Court flopped in 95, he must have been like, fucking Michael Gottlieb, <laughs> ruining my chances. <laughs> but this leads to another dream sequence, perhaps the most memorable, the one that I alluded to earlier. There's a menorah on the mantle as their classic nuclear family watches the Muppets, which actually means Frank Oz has two roles in this movie, thanks to being Miss Piggy. Yep, I only got paid twice. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly, a team of Nazi werewolves burst in and murder them all. I do think it's notable that this family seems upper middle class, sort of no matter how integrated you may become or how high on the social ladder you climb, this fear of anti-Semitism has you feeling insecure at all times. Like I said, I don't think that necessarily John Landis sat down and said, I'm going to write this allegory, but it does recreate this fear that the original Wolfman was commenting on, that Nazis internalized as werewolves through their own imagery can infect people again in an instant, burst into your house, kill your family. It feels almost like the wedding scene in Fiddler on the Roof, honestly. It it is so shocking. And it's I mean, I think the thing that works even better for me is this is the this is the fake out nightmare right before another night, like another nightmare on top of it. Mm -hmm. He he I think you're about to get to it, but like as soon as he wakes up from this horrible dream, you see his his brother, little brother and sister, just their bloody feet sticking out on the carpet. They're setting fire to everything. His throat's getting slit. I think it was Rick Baker in the mask holding a knife to him. And he was complaining in the commentary that, like, he couldn't see what he was doing. So right. it was, like, very nerve wracking. But when <laughs> it's you a real intense knife, 100 and then you come out of it and and then Alex goes to the window. Another Nazi monster jumps out and stabs her when he wakes up and goes, holy shit. It is like the bet. I think that's like my favorite thing he does in the movie because it's if you've ever had a bat a dream that bad and you come out of it and you're like, I'm thank God I'm back in reality. He must just feel like he's being split apart mentally. It's 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 so, so good. Definitely directly influenced by Bunnell's uh, discreet charms of the bourgeoisie in that dreams within dreams, confusion, the repeated wake ups. It is really effective. You know, uh, the double whammy. They love it. I love it. They said during premieres, it was really intense. And some people had to leave because they were just like the back to back scares like that were too much for them. It feels I mean, it must have been pretty novel. I feel like there wasn't a ton that was doing it on top of each other like that. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. And so he does wake up and Griffin is there. He's all torn up. He's asking for some toast. (laughs) Yeah, his first line. Can I have a bite of toast? It's so powerful and fucking wild. I I mean, this is not a novel thing to be like, oh, the little flapping piece of cheek is gross, but good grief. That thing is fucking gross. I I was going to say, like, this has probably now been said on like a thousand podcasts, but that flapping piece of skin is maybe the best piece of special effects, physical special effects for like a wound is 
I, 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 I am a stage one fan of Griffin Dunn in this. I, I like the decay, but mm. stage one is so visceral. It looks like he just got peeled off the moors. The blood is only a little dried on his jacket, but it's everything is just wet and open. Incredible. And also like, yeah, there's some shadows from the overhead lighting, but it's fully lit. He's just standing there. Yes. He doesn't have an ethereal ghostly glow. I was so <laughs> imagine if they had put a bad effect in this movie oh, like that. I'm so glad he's just in the room. He's there. It's so, yes. so good. And not only is he there under these awful fluorescent hospital lights, you really get to look at it. They're not quickly cutting to him and cutting back. You are watching him talk. <laughs> the confidence in the effects and makeup is is one of the reasons this is so, so amazing. Yeah. Rick Baker, truly a star. It is also generally a great interaction. You know, death hasn't stopped his sense of humor. And he gets he does get serious, though. He lays out the rules of the werewolf before warning David, hey, buddy, you got to kill yourself or you'll damn others to this walking hell. Oh, well, you have one thing to say. God. Yeah. <laughs> very intense and then he, he repeats beware the moon david again Not beware him. the Not moon <laughs> <laughs> alex comes to comfort him and he smooches her then confesses that he's a werewolf and she's nervous about his sanity especially when he says that he learned this from jack his dead friend who was just here but he's very sympathetic and he realizes he must have been dreaming so she invites him to stay with her since he's being discharged Alex, <laughs> this is this is a little wild, Alex. I love I love her character, but this is this is maybe not the best idea. Yeah, she says she's not in the habit of this, but he is a cutie pie. So that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there is an alternate version when they're heading back to her flat. He's making funny faces on the on the train and all the punks around him suddenly turn and are like, are you making fun of us? And then I picture <laughs> I picture him just getting thrown onto the tracks or beaten up yeah. on the side of the. <laughs> yeah. It's a very also a funny lead into the culmination of their flirtation, where she's like, perhaps you'd like to watch telly whilst I shower. And he, <laughs> he stands there innocently whistling while Moondance plays, and then it just cuts to them making out in the shower. Oh, yeah. So funny. There's not a lot of showers in London, apparently. I think that this actually did come up in another episode. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I don't remember where I was talking about this, but I feel like I have heard multiple times that, like, people have complained about the lack of showers in London. I definitely, in my time there, I feel like it was a very small shower, so maybe something that was, like, made, you know, beyond, after this time, obviously, but I would yeah. believe it. Yeah, and this one was constantly changing between icy cold and burning hot. God. Uh, he said, love scenes already not fun to shoot. Now imagine you're doing it in that. Sounds bad. Damn. <laughs> he awakes in the night and he goes to pee before being terrified by Jack appearing in the mirror, who's all putrefied now. I mean, we have to talk about this mirror trick. David said the understatement of the century in the commentary when he remarked, I think other movies have used this subsequently. <laughs> <laughs> this was on the, fir the first, though, right? They've done mirror scares before, right? So there is technically a similar one in Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Mm. But I watched it, and it's not quite the same. Uh, you know, it's not revealing something that's actually in the room. Oh. Whereas uh, this, he turns around, and Jack is there. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't quite the trope it has become today. But it is the first example of them, like, turning around and the guy is there. And it's I, still a very good example of it. I think it is spooky without being overbearing. 
which yeah. is something that happens a lot in these mirror, uh, mirrors. I do think it's funny that technically, I think it would be like he walks in, he walks past the mirror, then Griffin probably gets in place, and then yeah. he comes back. He also has like the shortest pee. He has like a two, three second pee, and then goes back to the mirror, turns it, he's there. But it's really, really good. And then also, well, who hasn't are- taken a dog out? And then it seems like they have to pee, and they just sprinkle a little something. <laughs> oh, because he's a dog like, now. Okay, yeah. I get it. Okay, he should. Yeah, that was a sign. He should have realized. But I do love that. I do love that he is o- always playing it positively, even though he keeps decaying. So, like, even when he turns the theory, it's not scary face him about to attack him. It's hey, I'm back. Hi, I'm yeah. in the bathroom with you. You know, hey, it's me, your good pal Jack. Exactly. Yeah. The zombie makeup was agonizing, Griffin said. Five hours to put on, and then by the end, you were exhausted, and it felt like you were being eaten alive by bugs from it stretching your skin and the glue stopping it from breathing. Uh, He said he tore off the makeup appliance at the end, and Rick looked horrified like he tore up a painting. (laughs) I mean, that's his baby, but come on. And Uh, Rick must must have put stuff on in his day, too. He's got to appreciate that that's not a fun thing. Definitely. And also Rick said that it was more he was worried about it like fucking up his skin and like tearing oh, off God. some of it. He said uh, he was like, oh, uh, we should have had him do that first. And then we could have just recorded his face like that for the uh, for the initial scene. Yeah, that yeah, that was just him taking the prosthetic off was the neck in the first scene. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he also found it horribly depressing to see what he'd look like dead when doing the makeup test. And Landis was like. I suspected this would happen, which is the weirdest, funniest response possible to that. That's so like because of because of Griffin Dunn specifically or like he just figured that anyone in that position would be. That's so weird. He did not expound upon that. I just just love "Hmm, I thought this might be the case. (laughs) Griffin was really going off on this. He was also like if Rick was psychotic, he could just take out those little straws. It oh, that's right. Yes, me. that's right. Oh yeah, it, feel, it feels like this is a tr- bit of a traumatic movie for him, <laughs> but God bless him for being in the role. That's right. He also, you know, he couldn't ask other actors about the experience because it wasn't something people had done before. Rick is on another level, and so he's exploring the boundaries of makeup. And so when when Griffin's under this pile of, of prosthetics, it's not like he can go, uh, another day at the office, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they're like, no, you're the guinea pig, man. I don't know what you're talking about. So the next day, the doctor has taken a little trip to the slaughtered lamb because a pint of Guinness goes down smooth with some murder investigation. (laughs) They're all still very hush-hush, though. And when he heads to his car, in seeming defeat, the dart thrower catches his attention. That boy's in danger. It was a mistake to let him leave here. We should have just murdered him. (laughs) Enough! (laughs) Yeah. That's right. The bald fella who leads the conspiracy shuts it down. I do love the doctor not not going all in on he's a werewolf, but saying like something happened more than what we are hearing. So I do appreciate that he goes and investigates. Usually the sign of this this guy's about to be killed, you know, out in this little village and not coming right. back. But I, I'm glad he went to to do his own inve- his own research for that is. Yeah, a little due diligence from the doctor. Yeah, he didn't have to. Back at London, Nurse Price leaves David alone at her apartment. A dog freaks out at him, as she does, and he gets locked out. Then, while climbing in, a cat gets mad, too. So things are going less than perfectly. (laughs) as things are. Cats and dogs don't like him. That's right. He amuses himself, or rather fails to, 
while Bad Moon Rising by Credence honks on the score. Suddenly, they're in for nasty weather indeed, John Fogarty, because the moon is out, and Jesus Christ, oh, I'm burning up! Oh my god. You know, this transformation, again, so much has been said about it. It's it, it, it's hard to speak about it in a way that doesn't feel like a cliche at this point. It's hard to impress upon listeners how intensely effective this scene is. I watched it so many times because not only did I watch the movie three times, in the special features, they show it over and over and over again. And every time I just, you know, you watch him screaming in this seemingly real agony. And it's just so powerful. It makes me so uncomfortable. It's a powerhouse of effects and performance alike. And I think that that is maybe part of what gets left behind is that David's performance is lending as much to the scene as the effects are because when he is begging for help, he apologizes to Jack between the screams. That's true. Yeah. It, it is just so intense. It's great. I, I, I'm repeating myself, but it's the case. It, it, I think that David brings so much to it that often gets overlooked when people are rightfully praising the effects. Yes, that that's a good because imagine if someone just wasn't able to sell it with all of that stuff on their body, that would be such a bummer because it would just, it would be corny. The part that's really chilling too. And I mean, it's, it's not a mistake. I'm sure that it was directed to do that. When he looks directly at the camera at one point, it looks like he's, he's pleading to you, the viewer to fucking help me. I'm, I'm, this hurts anyone, please. The idea too, that he's just calling out in this apartment, anyone walking by, please come in and help me stop this from happening to me. It's, Oh, I love also the cutaway to Mickey Mouse for a second. Yeah. <laughs> we did it. We did have hi, David earlier. So that's a weird little theme. I love that. I love that he's included in the werewolf transformation. Um, that's right. Incredible stuff. I know uh, I had a buddy who worked at like a haunted house and for part of a scene had to be kind of like up through a through the floor or something, you know, part of his body or torso through a portion of something. And it does sound like that's what they did. Uh, for for the uh, part of the transformation when he flips onto his back and it's kind of elongating, he's just impossibly the dimensions are no longer human like, and yeah. it would I can't imagine how tough that would be with prosthetics on and sitting in that position, and then to think about all of the individual different shots and extensions of the the legs and stuff, how much of it was actually on him versus was you know just you know a shot filmed separately by uh, it's. It's incredible. It's really incredible. And again, we can't see that enough. Just the confidence of the full light transformation, everything right in front of you is so impressive. I love a good effect and and used well with shadow, but this is special. They just don't people don't usually do something like this because it's CG and it looks bad against the background or and, and it's just not impressive if you don't have the right physical effects. And I just they don't think they'll ever have anything quite like this ever again. Right. It was the perfect moment where the prosthetics had advanced far enough to be this impactful, but not so far that they're like, oh, well, let's touch it up with CG and, and let's it, you know, it, fiddle with it here and there. It fools you. You, you. you stop. There's there's parts where you're like, is that still the actor's face? It's now it's stretching out. Is that on him or is that just a mm-hmm. model head? It's incredible. Just incredible. It really is. And 
you know, it, it seems uh, unsurprising at this point in our cultural uh, legacy for me to say, oh, it seems unpleasant to become a werewolf. But when you're used to things like Lon Chaney Jr.'s legs suddenly dissolving into hairiness or, you know, in Werewolf of London, he famously, like, dips behind some pillars. And yeah, those are great effects, and it's very impressive that they that the editing is used so effectively to help cover up the transformation into werewolves. But because of their nature and the suddenness of them, they are just a werewolf all of a sudden. There is no pain of transformation mm-hmm. like there is in this one. Um, and so that is just another way that this helps distinguish itself that it is in full light and you see this extended sequence of the transformation and it is agonizing. Yeah, that is, I wonder how much of that is really, you know, novel for all of the stories about it because it is a great detail to add to the werewolf lore that you have something like that happen to you and it is excruciating. And not only that, but after it all happens, you've lost yourself. That's another reason I think I like that he's more, you know, like you mentioned, bestial is that it doesn't feel like a wolf man running around that can recognize someone and can decide to wait and hide and do this is just he's rampaging yeah. after this. And it's and and clearly, you know, we'll learn later, like has no idea what happened. It's it's basically like amnesia after he, you know, started to get super hot and take all of his clothes off. It's just incredible. I'm I'm glad that they added that to the sort of werewolf lore because it's a great detail for stories and like something that makes it extra scary. You don't just become a badass wolf. Like it hurts. It sucks. Twilight, they just explode out of their clothes and they're big, they're big, cool wolves now. It's fine. Nothing happens. So I'm, I'm glad that that's what they put there. Yeah, I, I like it as well. I think that it really works. I also do like that amnesia that you're referencing as well, because when not to jump too far ahead, but when he wakes up the next day and he is feeling great. Oh, yeah. He's like, I feel like an athlete. Yeah. And and you're like, David, you murdered six people, my friend. Yeah, you should still be concerned given where you've woken up and everything. We'll get to it. Yeah. But. Uh, so the wolf does go on his jolly old rampage. He murders some pranksters while their hosts declare them hooligans in the park. I love this couple. They are so... Well, she's like, what? What are we doing? He's like, let's go give them a good scare. And they're, yeah. Oh, I just love them. They're so funny. <laughs> They'll never see it coming. This was a reference to Thatcher saying the Brixton riots were done by youthful hooligans and that race wasn't an issue. And in the <laughs> interview, John said, okay, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> that is a funny, like, what is she seeing from the window? Oh, there's hooligans again. It's like, well, it looks like a, it looks like a dog eating a bunch of raw meat. What are you looking at, lady? Just rustling bushes. It's that famous uh, balloon thief that that's been going around. <laughs> <laughs> this is intercut with the doctor discussing the situation with Nurse Price. It is kind of funny to have him be like, "Oh, it's mass neurosis." David believes he's becoming a werewolf, and he won't run around on all fours, of course. But he might be a danger to himself and other. Meanwhile, he's this insane huge yeah, he, hound from hell. He says, he's like, I'm not talking about running around on all fours. And he's like, he is, but he is, he is. <laughs> but I, again, that it does go back to, I feel like at any other point in most movies, this is the cop saying, go home. This isn't anything happening. I like that he's halfway. He's like, something is going on. I think that these people have convinced him that he did get attacked by something else or whatever. I, I think that's just, it, it. It doesn't feel like a lot of horror movies go that route. So I do like that he's getting there on what has happening to David. Yeah, a little a little trepidation, to be sure. Yes. He's a doctor, a medical doctor. Sure. Still. But yeah, he's at least buying a little bit of it. 
Meanwhile, David is moving on to attacking some unhoused gentlemen at the foot of the Bridge of London. Uh, nice shot, but a gruesome fate. Yeah. And he moves into the London Underground next. Another great oh. scary scene as the growls echo, and he pursues this lone guy trying to play it cool, which is pretty funny. I don't know what time this is supposed to be in 1981 London, but I feel like someone else would have been in this train station. Maybe <laughs> maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. But, it, man, it makes it so scary that there is not another soul that point of view shot coming around that curved tunnel. Have you ever been to? Have you ever been to, to London? No, I haven't. Uh, I, I've wanted to go, but this uh, makes it look pretty scary. There's werewolves <laughs> around out here. <laughs> well, you got to check out the porno theaters, is what I was going to say. But um, the I do love that curved nature of the tube, and the idea, like, I feel like walking through those, you just can't help but remember that scene. Right? It feels like anything could round the corner, and you'd just be screwed. It's just tile yeah. and posters until you can get out. Yeah, I mean, I feel it when I'm walking around in the Philly subway. Hey, <laughs> you know, so uh, if I were actually in London, I can only imagine how intense I would feel that recollection for sure. He awakens in the zoo, though. Uh, well, we do also get that great scene in the pursuit that you mentioned earlier, where you sort of look down and see the wolf approaching. Uh, that as might be like, one of my yeah favorite shots. Is you just see kind of the the four legs kind of come into to view a little bit of the you see how broad it is mm -hmm. and man it is so good and then that great cut to the lion roaring in mm -hmm. the zoo yes great transition as he awakes in the zoo he is in the wolf cage to be precise uh while in the commentary they both admired his nerve during uh during it to do this scene not only unprotected but completely exposed since he's nude as well and david said they got one take <laughs> I, I love it. I couldn't I wouldn't want to be like, think about it. You'd have to get your toes into the the links of that thing and hop over. Apparently not. He's, he was not a circumcised gentleman. So it's important that they didn't show his penis, I believe, since go. they've already established that he's Jewish. Very but, explicitly. The woman says, I looked at his penis. And yeah. He's Jewish. <laughs> if they could have cut that line, it would have been fine. They could have just said, you know, he has it hasn't had it done yet. But oh, well, no, that's that's the, the hinge of the movie. man. <laughs> They also didn't close the park as he tries to make his way back to the apartment. There's some really great stuff in there. He runs into an elderly lady. He steals a boy's balloon and another lady's coat. Great stuff. I love it. A naked man stole my balloons. What? <laughs> he does make it home, though, and he doesn't remember the night before. In fact, he's in good spirits and feels great as he greets Alex. And the doctor calls at that moment and says, get this motherfucker over here. Because, yeah, is he acting strangely? And he's kind of biting her. He's like, ang, ang, kind of just yeah. like on her. And it's like, all right, man, chill out. Yeah. We know what you were doing earlier. It's like, oh, is he horny or is he a wolf? Yes. Mm, much to think about. Much to think about. <laughs> they get in a cab and the driver tells them about the six murders. Puts you in mind of the demon barber of Fleet Street, don't it? He is Alan Ford. He is Bricktop from Snatch. The big the gangster who Fuck, feeds people it is to pigs. Him, isn't it? Yes. And just in just he's credit cab driver. That's his role. Wow. But yeah, yeah, real fun. I love that seeing them. It is really great. David freaks out. He immediately gets out to go to the cops, ineffectively provokes a random cop on the street while Alex tries to defuse it and get him to come to the hospital. Some very funny moments here. Some provocateur extraordinaire uh efforts from david here as he he tries to what, get this how offensive can he be to get arrested and it turns <laughs> right. out you just can't he, the guy's yeah. just gonna not take you seriously that's right uh, and so his getting arrested plan is in shambles and so david warns he gives up he says one cop that's it yeah I, I, this clearly in could run into a police station and threaten everyone but 
no, 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 no. Uh, David warns Alex to stay away because he loves her, which he says here, and he runs away. He calls home. He says a sad goodbye to his younger sibling, Rachel, and it's vague enough to only be like melancholy for us, not her, which I think is a really fun and interesting choice. Uh, he says, tell mom and dad I love them and don't fight with Max, etc., etc." But it's not like, by the way, Rachel, I'm a fucking werewolf and I'm going to go kill myself real quick. <laughs> like it's, it's-, it's really great to not have the other end of it. And, and it feels natural, like, you know, oh, tell Max that I love him. It's like, just tell him, OK? Like, I know yeah. it's weird that I'm saying this, but it feels that that's a really great little moment of humanity for him is and 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 the only time we've seen his family otherwise is just being slaughtered by the nazi monsters so great to have like no like he's talking to his little sister and just saying like okay this is who i got you have to pass on my last message and i can't even tell you that's what it is wow right yeah intense he can't bring himself to cut his wrist though and he ducks into a theater where he sees jack standing in front of it baker explained the use of the puppet at the end here because he said it's really hard to make people look thinner with makeup. Yeah. It's an additive process. And so oftentimes people will build out the cheekbones to then make hollow. Carve it out, but, yeah. And this can look weird. So the way that they did was this was they took a life cast of Griffin and then they could carve away that cast and actually make him look rotted. It's really effective. I think he looks friggin' nasty here. I think it's really good. I think it's like obviously like to our trained eyes, it's obviously a little puppety, but like I think it it syncs up pretty well with the the speech, and I think it looks like a really good degradation from the phase two to this phase three. Yeah, uh, you know, still that 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 green kind of like just getting darker and darker on him. I also do think the moments that you're mentioning are where it's like, oh yeah, to our trained eye, he looks like a puppet. But there is also a piece of me that like the stilted nature of it like oh it feels like he's being animated by magic like sure. he's not supposed to be he's undead and, he's he's only yeah. being kept alive by the werewolf's curse so that is right. that is an element as well you're right yeah this theater scene got a pretty serious change because when landis was in london in 1969 there were these cartoon theaters for parents to drop their kids off at to go shopping and with no home video you couldn't really see these old cartoons, so Landis was stoked, and he would go see these Chuck Jones and Fritz Freeling cartoons on 35mm, and it would be him, a bunch of kids, and some homeless people getting out of the cold. And <laughs> it was in one of these, it was one of these theaters in the script, one of these cartoon theaters, but when he came back to shoot the movie, they had all become mob-run porno theaters. <laughs> so, As they should have. Right, right, natural evolution. So he had to make the switch, but originally he transforms amidst several children and tells like a child to run. Wow. And so the idea of this being like that much more intense, I mean, it's already a pretty scary scene and for it to be a bunch of kids as well. Holy shit. Hard to imagine. Um, But we would have missed out on that amazing porno dialogue or like the guy confronts the couple and he's like, I've never seen you before. And he's like, oh, sorry. And like leaves. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> it's so, so good. It really is. And uh, that is a movie that they shot the first day of shooting. They shot the porno they're watching called See You Next Wednesday. Uh, presumably, I saw some people didn't like understand the title. My understanding of it is that it is a reference to See You Next Tuesday. Yeah. Which is a way of, uh, of course, being discreet about the word cunt. And so... 
you know, I think that that's clearly what he's doing here. At least uh, if anyone feels differently, they have a different interpretation of the title. Feel free to send that in. But that's at least how I've always taken it. For sure. For sure. Because he watched a few of the pornos that were screening there. And he said, these are all terrible. (laughs) So he said, I'm just going to make my own. Oh, my God. John Landis (laughs) just sitting there just critiquing them. Ah, (laughs) this dialogue is terrible. See you next Wednesday is going to be way way better than this. (laughs) The victims of 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 David's rampage are all there as well. They're understandably pissed. They debate the methods of suicide in a moment of uh, dark humor that I really like quite oh, a bit. Uh, this is a great and another uh, my my favorite couple again. Still cheery as all get out. They <laughs> you could kill yourself, shoot yourself in the head with a gun. Like oh, just God, they are great. so. The other guy, the, the subway guy, is understandably pissed. He's like, hey man. My kids are, are orphans. My my wife's a widow. Fuck you. And then yeah. the couple, hmm, you can throw yourself in front of the tube or whatever. You know, yeah. I already think that's the other guy's line. But they are they have not stopped their their puckish behavior from before that's they got right. killed. That's right. Uh, and then you have the middle ground of the uh, homeless gentleman being like, I can't say it's a pleasure to meet you. That's great, <laughs> like, too. Yeah, yes. Okay. And he's like, oh, well, what if it was, you know, he, or his, his friends? Oh, what if it was, you know, painful? Oh, what, who cares? <laughs> who cares? <laughs> See, this guy's cursed us. <laughs> I also, one of my favorite lines is, um, we sort of alluded to this already, David asks if he'd need a silver bullet to shoot himself with, and Jack just goes, be serious, will you? I, and, and it, yeah, and, and like, he, it's him, deca- his best friend that he died in the starting movie is decaying and saying, like, come on, man, you're, are you really buying in at all this hocus pocus bullshit? It's like, grow up. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Soon enough, though, the moon is full. And David transforms before going on another rampage in Piccadilly Circus, which was quite a feat to shoot. In fact, they were the first movie production to close it down for a film. Uh, the fellows said, this guy's just love car crashes. <laughs> you know, what's funny, too, is that the werewolf bites off the inspector's head. Mm-hmm. It goes c- clanging over a, a hood of a car. After oh, that, it. I think it's just tearing across the street all the other fatalities are just like automobile accidents, people getting run into other people, people going through glass and windshields. Uh, there's a cop that gets pinned between two cars, and I don't That's feel right. like the werewolf gets anyone else before he gets to the alley. It's really something else. <laughs> there's ghosts haunting that car that are like, <laughs> you need to kill yourself, car. <laughs> this is also like maybe my favorite. I mean, I maybe haven't seen enough horror movies that took place in London, but this and like 28 Days Later are my favorite like Piccadilly Circus scenes in a horror movie. Killing Murphy when it's there and very it's completely different. very different, but completely barren and the music's building and it really just drives home that everyone is freaking gone. He's finding yeah. all this money and it's like, if there's money on the ground and no one's around you, this is bad times for you. And then <laughs> you have this scene, which I'm glad seemed to have opened up and loosened up like, yeah, we'll figure out ways for people to start shooting here again, because you couldn't ask for a better setting for a huge, a huge werewolf attack like this. It's incredible. Definitely. And one of the gentlemen who goes through the window that you mentioned is, in fact, John Landis himself. (laughs) Oh, good on him. (laughs) The cops come and they trap the wolf down an alleyway. And Alex has arrived as well. And she appeals to him. Please, David, I know you're in there. And it seems like it might work for a brief moment. A little bit of the nose that softens and it's unsnarls for a second. Yeah. Just a second until he lunges again and the cops open fire and they kill him and transform him back. Incredible aim, too. But the, she's standing right in front of David. They must have done some like ricochet shots off the brick or something because it's or, or like Pulp Fiction shot through them and into the wall behind. It's it's really something else. 
in the, the uh, documentarian's commentary, he said that there was actually a deleted part where, like, one of the cops was, like, in the way and also got, like, shot by some bullets. Oh, so interesting. There you go. And yeah, he is transformed back. You see him there with several bullet holes. It is a tragic ending. Uh, bittersweet, as we know that, of course, this has released all of his victims as well. But uh, poor David, right? Rip King. It, it's just really great. And the guys pointed out the lack of silver bullets in this climax. And they said, oh, we could do a couple more of these, which mm-hmm. apparently pissed off Landis. <laughs> he said no. there will be no sequel. We're done. He's dead. <laughs> I love it. And this, I, you know, I mentioned Barbarian earlier, not a, uh, too much of a spoiler, I hope, but this is another movie where it like hard cut to credits, music sting. Yes. I love, I love the abruptness of it to me is great. And they've just been doing these, these moon, very moon centric music cues the whole time. So for me, it, it totally fits in. It also Mm -hmm. explains that earlier scene that we're confusing audiences at the time where you see the, the naked man, you know, bullet holes in them and stuff. I don't know. Right. I, I love the ending. I think that's divisive for some folks. It, it works for me. I love, I don't need, I don't need his, all the dead people. Goodbye. You know, disappearing to the afterlife. <laughs> I don't need to go back to East Proctor and have them going, ah, oh, the curse is lifted. The, the red, you know, the star disappears or something. <laughs> we don't need any of that shit. We don't need it. Damn. I didn't think I needed it until you described oh, no. those. And now <laughs> you want force ghosts and, saying goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's get Lucas in here. I'll touch it up. It'll be really Let's do nice. the George cut. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And now, Robert, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up where it's not just a good horror movie. Why, in fact, it's not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Ah, we have covered so much of it. And uh, for me, there's just uh, multiple elements of it. I think the fact that it cemented itself as a perfect blend for me of horror and comedy, even if it's a horror movie that has comedic elements. Sorry, John Landis. Uh, but <laughs> don't apologize to him. He killed Vic Morrow in those. Uh, those hey, I wasn't going to so. say anything, but you know, you know, hey, and I don't know. I don't endorse the guy, but he made a great werewolf film. Um, He's a, it's, a talented director, no doubt. It's it, it. The effects obviously are an incredible part. The performances. I'm so glad that we had newcomers for Jack and David. And making it, especially like modern at the time, like I feels like it was an easier thing to make it a far flung back in the past, you know, Victorian style, you know, monster movie. And it really felt novel to make it modern and make it in the middle of bustling London and just drove home like the real fear if like something like that broke out, if something ancient and that destructive broke out into a a public setting like that, it would be devastating. Mm-hmm. It's self rep. It's referential to the werewolf lore that came before it. It added so much to it and to everything that came after. I feel like the scares and gore are just perfect. I wish I could get the cut with the songs that Landis wasn't able to get rights for. If only just to hear five more moon songs. <laughs> it's something that I watch not just every Halloween, but probably multiple times a year just because it's not just a great horror movie, the greatest horror movie, but it's just a great film. And and it and it's buoyed by just everyone coming together and really fully realizing what uh, just an incredible story and something I'm so glad that you mentioned the stories behind the origins of the werewolf that really seem to connect in a way that I wouldn't have gotten on on most rewatches. So 
I'm going to take that with me the next time I see it. And I just feel like all of those elements combined just make it the best horror movie there is. Absolutely. I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because, yes, it has the effects. They are unparalleled. You know, uh, Rob Botton and and Tom Savini and, and all these guys, when you're talking about your Mount effects more, you gotta have Rick Baker in there. And and it's not it's not just this movie that puts him there, but I think that this is sort of the culmination. This is his peak. And and it's not just the wolf, but the zombie makeup and and all of that stuff. It is just an effects powerhouse. Practical all the way. And every moment of effects that are on screen, you are just going, how did they do that? It is so relentlessly impressive in that capacity. But then on top of that, you have some incredible writing. It is funny without getting lost in the comedy, I think, because the scares are there. The performances are incredible. They do such a great job of conveying that naturalism, feeling that easy friendship between the two of them, and then also being able to deliver the fear. And I think most importantly, and this is something that you mentioned, is its revisibility. I not only have seen this movie a bunch in the lead up to this episode, I have seen this movie a bunch in general because it is so fucking good. And... I feel like every time I come back to it, I do like it more and more and more. And I started from a position of really fucking liking this movie. But every time you you notice new little things, you're able to absorb more of the, the, the nuances of the performances. Uh, and all of these little things like the doctor who does take it seriously, but is still, you know, kind of caught up in his own worldview. It, it's all sort of explored without dragging the movie you know it, it never it never feels bogged down in these digressions and in fact i think that this is one of the best paced movies of all time that's pretty a pretty great compliment and you're right it's not like i can't think of it and go oh they need to get rid of that doctor subplot it's like no he goes he learns some information comes back it's all you know properly parsed out Right. I, you know, it's the time with, you know, with Alex is all set up to that, their connection together. And then him being freaked out when he thinks he's transforming. It's, ah, it's so, so good. I mean, you did a great job of of summing it up. Yeah. It just moves so quick. And, uh, and, and I think that part of it moving so quick is that I am left wanting more. Hmm. I, I go and I, I say, I got to watch the movie again because I need more of David Naughton and I need more of, uh, the Rick Baker effects and I need more of this whip smart comedy. It's, it's just so perfect at blending these elements. And that's what makes it the best horror movie ever made. Robert, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was so much fun. Please tell the people where they can find you, where they can check out your work, all that stuff. Well, I'm on social media, but I don't, I don't post a whole lot. So if you find my accounts, uh, don't expect to see a whole <laughs> bunch of content. I will of course be, you know, retweeting and reposting anything, uh, about my appearance here. That being said, I co-host the gentleman overlords podcast with a couple buddies of mine. We, I think we've been doing it for almost nine, 10 years now. 
And we've been covering usually like kind of uh, bad ish, you know, hol- you know, newer releases and stuff. Uh, but it got a little taxing. And with the strike, we've kind of pivoted to all just picking some old favorites and, 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 you know, movies that we actually enjoy a little bit more. So uh, a little less grueling, a little more of a format change, but it's been a fun time only doing that the last couple of weeks or so. I also associate produce for Hollywood Handbook and the Flagrant Ones. Great podcasts, uh, a great Patreon if you're inclined to sign up. I know you've had some of the Flagrant family on before me, so I'm in good company. But uh, yes, if you have any uh, disposable income, I would encourage you to check those out. Other than that, just keep listening to this podcast because I really love it. And I'm so honored that you had me on. Wow. What a what a kind thing to end on. And of course, I encourage you to check out all of Robert's work as well. Uh, as he mentioned, I have had members of the Flagrant fam on previously. Uh, so if you are enjoying the show and you're listening because uh, Robert mentioned it, hey, go check out those episodes in the back catalog. Great place to start. We had Under the Silver Lake with the Hayes Man himself. Chef Kev came on twice to talk about um, once The Last of Us Part 2 and once Silence of the Lambs. So two uh, two great picks there as well. Andy Neese, the Grey King, uh, he's been here to talk about The Exorcist and then also his own uh, Tales from the Crypt musical that he wrote and was <laughs> fucking incredible. So so that's tucked away behind the paywall. Ooh. But, but a lot of great stuff there. We've also had Vera Drew come on recently to talk about Return to Oz. So if you want to hear more about that movie, you can do that. Justin Mancini was on recently to talk about Take Shelter. Brothy Gupta to talk about Rocky Horror Picture Show. A lot of great stuff recently. And that is all culminating in, uh, hopefully, a 24-hour live stream at the end of the year. Because uh, I am doing a listener drive where we are at a point in the downloads for this show where reaching 100,000 downloads is possible but a little bit of a stretch by the end of the year and so i'm saying that right now i am committing to an eight hour live stream wow and then for every thousand that we get closer to the hundred thousand uh download mark i will add one hour to the stream and then if we hit the mark i will just finish it off it, it, that it's only uh, that would put us at like 21 hours and I'll just finish it off. Put us at 24 hours for a live stream packed with all kinds of fun guests. Uh, we'll do watch alongs. We'll do legal thrillers. We'll do games, uh, all kinds of really good stuff that I'm really looking forward to. So if you are enjoying the show, please just literally tell somebody about it. Like I, I reviews are great and all that stuff, but there is nothing better for the show than just being like, Hey, I liked this episode. Check it out. 100%. Yeah. So so if you are enjoying the show, please do that. And you will help uh, get us to that very big landmark, which I am really uh, looking forward to. Big milestone. So please help us get there. And uh, if you're really enjoying the show, check out the Patreon. All that jazz. You know how it works. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.